Hey everyone, welcome back to Zora's Daughters, the podcast where we share Black feminist perspectives and close read pop culture and other social topics that affect Black folks. I'm Alyssa and I use she, her, hers pronouns. Hey y'all, I'm Brendan and my pronouns are also she, her, hers. Today we'll be talking about hegemony, institutional power, and the academic hierarchies that fail to protect Black queer and trans women. But before we get into it, happy birthday. Happy solar return to the only, well, let me, me, okay, one of the only (laughs) Aquarians that I can stand, my co-host, Alyssa, if you are listening (laughs) on the day that this episode comes out, it's Alyssa's birthday, so DM us with your well wishes, send her a few birthday dollars, um what are you doing what are your plans for your birthday thank you thank you for the well wishes uh the any cash would be much appreciated uh but not too much (laughs) i celebrated on the weekend uh with a private chef that came to our apartment and cooked for us it was far too luxurious i was like i could get used to this i love to see it Mm -hmm. what i could get used to it but my student budget says nah nah negative (laughs) No, <laughs> but I have an in-home massage planned and that's courtesy of my mom. Thank you, mom. Thanks, mom. So I'm just going to relax and take it easy. And I was actually thinking about how Bay organized that dinner for me and I showed up at the restaurant. This was years ago, two years <laughs> ago. And I was just expecting it to be him and I and you were there. And I was like, what are you doing here? <laughs> I was like, oh, that's so funny. It's so funny she came to the same restaurant. I guess she's on a date night. But it was a surprise. Like, he invited some of my friends. And, you know, it was really nice. I smile every time I think about it. (laughs) And I just, I remember seeing you. Like, I remember exactly how you're dressed and seeing you through the window being like, it's so funny Brendan's here. What a surprise. (laughs) Yo, why was she dressed like that on a date? Yeah, that was such a, a sweet night, honestly. It was fun to hang out with y'all and try the place. I don't even remember the place we went to. It was Avant-Garden. Avant it, it was a vegan place. It was back in my vegan days. Oh, yes. <laughs> I remember being like, oh, wow, this is dinner number one. But I'm here to celebrate, and I love it. Um, so that was like forever, forever, forever ago, it feels like. Pandemic years have been creeping by. Um, before the podcast, before the world was opening and closing randomly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but before we get too carried away in our reminiscing, um, we just want to thank all of you for supporting us. We would not and could not be doing this without y'all. So shout out to our new patrons pew, 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 <laughs> who have joined Sora's Daughters community. Uh, and we really are looking forward to building that space up for folks to chat and share ideas, get to know us a little bit more. And if you want to join, you can join at patreon.com slash Zora's Daughters. And if you join before midnight tonight, that's February 16th, we will mail you a handwritten postcard from our respective cities. So once again, that's patreon.com slash Zora's Daughters. Yes. We also love non-monetary support, so please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and follow us at Zora's Daughters on Instagram or Zora's underscore daughters on Twitter. 
Also, we find that the way most people hear about us is through word of mouth. So please share our podcast with your friends, your family, or add it to one of those Black History Month listicles that y'all be sharing. Thank you. And <laughs> as a final piece of news, I want to add that it is official. My postcard for our new patrons will be coming to some of y'all from Martinique. A bitch got her research visa. Okay, AA. The flight is booked, and I'm getting ready to leave this cold city next weekend. <laughs> Yo, the fr- like, first of all, yes, excited for you to get a move on your field work and to get away from winter because oh, we were not made to live in these temperatures. My body, my skin, my, body my hair. Yo, decline my scalp. but i just feel like they just need to turn a weather machine off already i think it slipped up Mm -hmm. um on sunday but yes you need to like turn it back off you know let it let it warm up a little bit (laughs) anyway um let's get on with it Uh, Alyssa. what's what's the word for today our word for today is hegemony So as usual, I busted out my trusty Oxford Dictionary of Sociology, which tells me that we have two theorists to thank for the development of this concept. And of course, there are many other theorists who have contributed to the concept and its growth. But foundationally, we talk about Karl Marx and Antonio Gramsci. In Marx's historical materialism, hegemony refers to the ideal representation of the interests of the ruling class as universal interests. So of course that doesn't mean our personal interests or hobbies like golfing or polo. I probably shouldn't say are because those are not my personal interests, but I'm talking (laughs) about the ruling class, but rather a cause or issue that brings a benefit or advantage to that group. So these class interests and ideals from the ruling class are inherently opposed to the class interests of the working class, but they come to be widely accepted as legitimate. But if these ideals are detrimental to the working class, how do they come to have legitimacy across all of us? Well, Marx says that society is made of two different parts. You have your base and then you have your superstructure. There is a lot more to this and I am by no means a Marx expert. Honey, Capital Volume 1 is still sitting in someone's bookshelf, but not mine. So, um, <laughs> but the base, right, is the part of society where our basic necessities are produced. So and these things are produced through labor, through labor relations and property. And the superstructure are our, quote, higher order ideas and relationships that aren't directly related to production, such as culture, religion, ritual, media, and so on. And so the base and the superstructure, they reinforce each other. Gramsci's contribution was to divide the superstructure into civil society and political society, and he posited that hegemony is located in the non-state level of the superstructure. So hegemony, and I keep wanting to say hegemony, because that's how I used to say it before I learned, <laughs> before I learned it, um, is social and cultural. So it's not just about using force to wield power like you might in war or in other forms of conflict. but actually making superiority and hierarchy seem natural through discourse. Right. So what did all that mean? 
Hegemony involves manipulating the way we think and see things so that certain groups having power and other groups being oppressed is accepted as the natural order of things. Mm -hmm. It is a type of domination that operates through group consensus rather than the power over. So it's the things we take for granted and accept as being part of just the way things are. That's just how things are. So anytime someone says that's just how we do things or that's just how it is, that's hegemony in action. The things or the ideologies and discourses circulate through the media, through cultural productions, through folk beliefs, and other social institutions that allow those in power to influence our values, norms, ideas, expectations, worldview, and our behavior. So school is actually a really great example of where hegemony comes mm -hmm. into being, because it's a, it's a place where we learn common sense, right? Mm -hmm. So for example, the ideology of the American dream. What does it do? It sells the belief that upward mobility is possible for everyone, no matter where they start from. It says that through hard work, through graft, you can have economic success. It also implies that the rich have earned their riches and the poor deserve their poverty. So these beliefs validate our current economic system, which is capitalism, which is essentially like, if you work hard enough, you can find success. So it makes mm -hmm. sense that that we have a system that would reward hard work. However, this hegemonic idea obscures the various inequalities that are built into capitalism, specifically that it expressly requires an underclass of people to function. So as I've said, capitalism is a pyramid scheme. <laughs> right, pyramid scheme. And all that means is that there are more people on the bottom, fewer people on the top, honey. And... If you're like, capitalism is a pyramid scheme, y'all should put that on a t-shirt. Guess what? We already did. We're way ahead of you, boo. Um, you can find that t-shirt on our website, zorasdaughters.com. But to sum it up, hegemony is our agreement with values and beliefs that reflect and support those of the ruling class that are a result of our socialization and circulating cultural narratives. Exactly. So just remember, hegemony is an influence-based system. So it's not about power over, but rather our learned cultural tendencies. The foundation to hegemony is common sense acceptance of the way things are. So to start pulling back the curtain on it, you have to ask, who does this process, institution, or ideology benefit? And who pays? Because in capitalism, y'all, something always comes at a cost. Mm. So I think that's a great question. And actually... We'll begin to answer that in our next segment, which is what we're reading. What we're reading today is Black Lesbians, Who Will Fight for Our Lives But Us? Navigating Power, Belonging, Labor, Resistance, and Graduate Student Survival in the Ivory Tower by S. Tay Glover, published in 2017. So as a caveat, you know, we usually read the bio. This bio is the one that was published with the essay in 2017, and I've tried to add some details of what she, what Glover is up to now. So Este Glover is an interdisciplinary black lesbian feminist scholar artist and healer pursuing her PhD degree at Northwestern University in the Department of African American Studies from which she has a master's degree. She received her bachelor's degree in women's studies and political science and her master's in women's gender and sexuality studies from the Ohio State University. Her research and art centers on 
occult studies, history, feminisms, black Southern queer women's experiences, erotic counterculture, and critical theory. She is founder of The Witch Goddess Wellness, a holistic spiritual lifestyle brand and media platform that houses her modern mystic creative content and consulting healing services. Today, at present, she is a professional psychic medium, astrologist, and certified shamanic master healer and teacher who offers trauma-informed healing, healing justice modalities for women, LGBTQIA, and gender-expansive Black, Indigenous, and POC communities. I just... Ping her guns, yo. Yes, my <laughs> kind of girl. Like, And she's from the South, too. I just... The only thing that would make this more perfect is if she were a Gemini, but <laughs> that's my bias, my biases coming out. Um, of course, we have to shout out our girl Chloe, who was on our Afro pessimism episode for putting us onto this essay a while ago. And in an interview about the publication of this essay, Glover describes the article as a quote mini autobiography and unsilencing regarding being a trauma survivor in this life so far as a dark skinned black lesbian feminist born and raised in the rural south of the u.s committed to truth-telling black lesbian feminist politics activism and justice and so in my read of it right this essay very clearly lays out the stakes that glover and other black queer women have in saving themselves in the face of the violent academy and she begins by recognizing her specific vulnerability to violence as a black lesbian graduate student like right out of the gate she dispels the myth that I believe is one of the myths that keep the academy going, mm. right? That the academy is a place where liberation can happen, especially for black, queer, and trans people. So she says, quote, to interrupt epistemologies of ignorance, I engage Barbara Christian and Grace Hong's critiques of universities and disciplines, uh, how they comply with the state's historical containment, management, and extinguishment of black women, black feminisms, and black queer feminists in particular. And as well as literature exploring black queer women's specific graduate and postgraduate experiences in the academy. So drawing upon black feminist, third world feminist, and queer critique, Glover seeks to quote, to unveil the life and death consequences of neoliberal, anti-black, sexist, homophobic institutional spaces for black lesbian, queer women, in graduate school and specifically within women's studies and black studies at predominantly white institutions. Space is thought to be justice-centered progressive homes for graduate students like me, which, whew, just that in and of itself in the article right there. <laughs> I mean, it's such a huge contribution and to, mm -hmm. to, to black lesbian feminist studies, to all, to like just what's going on in the academy. In general, people really do believe that the university is this this amazingly progressive space and everybody believes mm -hmm. that they're doing something um that's their calling you know that this is their vocation mm -hmm. but it's like at the end of the day this is just another workplace and mm -hmm. i think the sooner you realize that uh the less you're going to feel disappointed by everything that happens in it so Ooh, chile <laughs> So Glover draws on a number of scholars, including Barbara Smith, Moya Bailey, Audre Lorde, Sarah Ahmed, and Chandra Mohanty, to examine her experience as a feminist killjoy and willful subject. So I really want to talk about the introduction, where she talks about the pedagogy of accommodation, 
and how it maintains the, quote, school to oppressor pipeline for white people mm-hmm. and those in power as much as it maintains the, quote, school to prison slash precarity pipeline for marginalized students. Mm. So Chandra Mohanty, she defines pedagogy of accommodation as distinct from pedagogy of dissent and transformation. So it promotes a sort of multicultural civility and respectability rather than social justice. Its goal is management and quelling dissent rather than actually challenging and eliminating the causes. And whew, mm. have we seen that? Do we know a little something about that? A little something. A little something. You know, I'm just, I'm just gonna say it. I'm gonna tell, I'm gonna tell it. I'm gonna tell it. But okay. Okay. So Glover writes, "Quote: Pedagogy of accommodation appeases white normativity and white comfort in the curriculum and classroom environment, often to the detriment of students of color." End quote. Mm. So one of the examples she gives is about professors not challenging racist views in class because she didn't want to alienate students. So that effectively places the comfort of white students over the interests of students of color and social justice in general. Mm-hmm. And so that really reminded me of the experiences that we had with some, with you know, just a, just a touch, just a tad of race conflict <laughs> in our department, if we want to even call it that, race conflict. And the immediate, the almost immediate calls for us to repair, right? Yes. So there was no acknowledgement of harm, which I would say is kind of a precondition to repair. Just the demand that we, the Black students calling out injustice, be professional, right? Mm. You know, or that mm. that calling out all of this, uh, the basically the anti-Blackness in the department and the university, uh, in academia in general, we were being unprofessional. So we were the killjoys, right? We spoke out and we became the problem. That was kind of, that's kind of the quote from Sarah Ahmed, you know, you speak out against the problem and you become the problem. And so following that, we become responsible for a fractured department and for fixing it. Which is very common, right? It's not just the things that happen to black students at elite universities, I would just ask the question, right? How many black students in liberal or progressive departments found themselves pinning letters or gracing town halls in 2020 with their presence only to be told that their demands were too much? Like, yeah, you know, niggas out here dying in the street, but at least you here protected, quote unquote, within the walls of the ivory tower, right? What do you have to complain about? Um, I remember distinctly, and Alyssa, I know you were also there, asking for certain things to meet my needs as a first-generation student, like some money for exam books, and then being told to go to the library, like, you know. <laughs> and now one of the new initiatives in the, in the department is a small book fund for students that they can apply and receive money for books, but I was also directly told that I would not be able to benefit from that. So hmm. Hmm. nice to know. Nice to know. Things change, but are the same. <laughs> yes. So I think I think that there are other initiatives in the department that I have seen and been like, um, wasn't that in something that we talked about? Wasn't that in something that we wrote about? And there's not even so much as a, hey, this is thanks to the dedication or commitment to our Black students of, you know, blah, blah, blah. But anyways. <laughs> We're willful subjects. Yes. So before we, before we get too, 
before we say too much and um, not be able to get jobs one day, which <laughs> <laughs> again is is part of the things that were that um, part of the problem. But yes. exactly, um, you know, it's one of these situations where we're forced to interact with these colleagues and we're forced to repair with racist mm-hmm. colleagues. You know, and so we have to become these willful subjects and resist and reject their attempts to mollify us, right? To turn us into the respectable academics who revere our status as tokens. Like, oh, you just better be happy that you're here. Like, you, even you saying that, to say that we're in the institution and we're protected, it's like, how many stories have there been about campus police assaulting Black students on campus because they don't think that they should be there? There have been cases and. I'm thinking about a case in Toronto where, you know, a group of graduate students, they went to a restaurant. Some of them were even wearing their university, you know, sweaters and stuff like that, um, you know, which they, they actually wear on purpose so that people mm-hmm. won't treat them uh, like they're just another nigga. Uh, they were asked to pay for their meal in advance. And when they asked everybody else, were you asked to do this? Were you asked to do this? Nobody else was. It was just a group of black graduate students. And they want a lawsuit. Go them. <laughs> Go them. Get some money. Get that money. So we stop showing up to events or insisting on participation in the, de- in the department. And Glover writes that, quote, when you stop showing up, it positions you as unprofessional and having failed to meet expectations without considering their failure to create a space that supports your well-being in the first place. Right. Like... I'll speak for myself again. I definitely have experienced that critique of just, you know, how can you expect to be heard if you don't show up, right? Like, how can we hear you if you don't even go to the town meetings? And I used to show up so that I wouldn't get fined. Um, And for those of you who know, that's a reference to some football player. Um, Marshawn Lynch. Yes. You know, know, it's all one game to me. I don't know. Um, But... Then I would inevitably find myself doing some kind of labor in that meeting, whether it be internally or just like, girl, just tune these people out. Yeah, they're saying whack shit, but you don't have the energy to argue or opening my mouth and then having to teach people why what they said they shouldn't have said or why this doesn't make any sense. And so now I prioritize my peace. I'm like, why must I be present in places where the signal of my presence is valued, but my voice must not be heard, right? And just like what I mean by the signal of my presence, like just my black self being in that space, but just it, that it, like I can't speak, can't talk, can't do anything or else I'll be written as um, as angry, right? And so I'm thinking like if I want to be silent for two hours, I could just go watch a movie. I could just turn on Lifetime, and see something exciting and new. Um, I would feel less broken apart after it's over. But I found that fighting for my life, especially in academic spaces, means going to where the love is, as my friend Dara says. Yes, Glover discusses the ways we often engage with these liberal departments. So we may choose dissemblance, which if you're unfamiliar with that term, it was originally coined by Darlene Clark Heim. She studied the affective lives of Black domestic workers and discovered that they survived through a culture of dissemblance, where they separated their personal Black interior life from their professional lives in horrifying white racist environments. 
So in our departments, this might look like putting on that professional, respectable face and then going home. Other tactics of survival might be strategic silence or direct vocal opposition. All of these tactics have their own pros and cons, and we might deploy them in varying ways at varying times in order to get through our programs. Yes, this sound like we talking about, you said earlier, racial conflict. It feels like war. Um, <laughs> sometimes it really does. A cold and one. Even a cold <laughs> one. A like, cold yeah. war. Long, cold war. Uh, and even when we do what's best for us in any given situation, right? we can still be troped as the angry black woman. Um, I mean, the, and, that, ooh, that class with a face <laughs> where one of our colleagues made a face and the white woman cried. That was, Let's just. She did. Over a face. Over a face. That was. Anyway, hmm. that's okay. I had a conversation with her afterwards, and things worked out. Oh, that's good. Better. She at least she was scared to say something again, and that's all. <laughs> that's all I really care about uh, at this point. I'm not trying to change you. I just want you to to know that I'm not the one. So, um, but even as we're like wrapped up in this angry black woman image, right? People still engage us with their racist and sexist conversations. Like I don't even know if you've experienced this um but that part like really hit me like folks will really call us angry and then drag us into debates about whatever topic they choose or ask you to do some type of labor for them like I used to have this problem where non-black students and faculty and black men used to pull me into whatever problem they had to serve as either a mammy or a sounding board quote-unquote and then I would turn around and hear my ideas being chopped up and represented in class as their original thoughts. And when I would say something about it, um, I would be gaslit or told that my tone was inappropriate. So hmm. all that to say, I am so glad to be out of classes. <laughs> I hope to never be a student in someone's classroom again. Um but I think this really underscores what Glover discusses about the impossibility of being a black queer person in the academy that practices their values fully. Like there's always some part of us that we have to hide away or protect. And the very design of, quote, professionalism and civility right, require you to hide as much of the black in you as possible, in my argument, right? And like professionalism is what got me caught up in the harassment that I faced in graduate school, even among black people, which, you know, we, we need to, we need to underscore that the black studies part of this as well, right? Not just the women's studies part, but the black studies part. Yes. I mean, that, that is a big part of this article, which is that you are not safe mm -hmm. in the women and gender studies and the feminist studies, and you are not safe in the black studies because of the androcentrism of mm -hmm. their justice centered narrative. So Mm-hmm. We we don't know. Who knows? I think, you know, Glover talks about what you were saying as well, like hearing her ideas being repeated from, from white mouths and, you know, people stealing her ideas and and things like that. And we've experienced it too, of course, in our classes. We'll be the ones to to be like, mm, something about this article is anti-black or something about something that we read has these these issues and then all of a sudden everybody else has that critique now they're like oh yeah oh, i see yeah. it let me say that too <laughs> and you know don't you just feel your back being walked on in those moments mm -hmm. like ooh, did i ooh, ooh. 
Oh, and I love when they say, yeah, I don't remember who said this, but. <laughs> oh, yeah. And it'll be like, you just said the shit too. Or you'll. Sorry, like, I can't remember no who good. brought this up, but. You know, good and goddamn well, you know who brought this up. You know you need to be citing me in your and all your responses in your final papers. But Facts. in one class, we basically staged a intervention in that same class with the person who had the issue with the look. And we noticed everyone was taking notes as the black students were talking about the different readings. So one day I was like, y'all, we're not going to speak for the first like 10, 15 minutes mm. and we'll see what happens. And of course, it was so silent. The professor, bless his heart, was confused and was like, okay, what's happening here? Um, And then once we broke our silence and spoke and we talked, we addressed the inequalities and it didn't change the classes moving forward. I mean, there was a little shift, but at least we pushed back on kind of that that power dynamic Mm because I think... People focus so much on like quote being heard, but sometimes that too in and of itself, like in and of itself is racial oppression. If you're always the one talking, you're always the one interpreting, you're always the one offering knowledge and they get to sit in their privilege and power and absorb and consume. um, Sometimes it's good to push back on that, Mm. on that power dynamic. I think that was a, that was an excellent tactic, like taking up a, a politics of silence and then seeing what comes of that which was nothingness which again tells Literally. you demonstrates the way that we are we're basically the ones who legitimize and like actually make this institution run in many different ways mm-hmm. right in terms mm-hmm. of who's doing what kind of labor in the physical sense in the university and who's doing the intellectual labor and well what yeah. what would they do without us? Hmm. They don't want us there, but they can't be without it. Like it don't it anyways. <laughs> <laughs> it only makes sense through the logics of white supremacy. There you it go. There you go. It only makes sense. <laughs> so actually, you mentioned that section on on uh, black lesbian impossibility and respectability, and that section mm-hmm. really got me thinking about a conversation we had about how we are just disposable in this political economy of academia. I don't know if you remember. It was in a group chat, but it operates in a similar way that elite class reproduction and the circulation of Mm -hmm. capital do, which I've been thinking about recently because I've been watching like the Tindler Swindler and I've been watching Inventing Anna on Netflix. And I'm like, oh, this is a lot about connections, who you are, where you come from, how you behave, if you know the correct habitus of the environment that you're in. And so, of course, you know, you've got your top tiers, you know, which goes something like the privileged whites, you know, mm-hmm. the, the POC, and I'm using that loosely, but, you know, the black and brown intellectual spawn, their children. Because mm-hmm. if you know the statistics, I think like the majority of PhD students have parents who are professors or who have PhDs. And then, of course, the endangered black man. <laughs> and so I believe that the conclusion was where, you know, black, queer, first generation, low income women. And so we're basically just, dis- we're just, quote, this is not my quote, this is someone else's quote, but, quote, disposable randoms in this economy. And, oh, 
I do not disagree. Uh, <laughs> oh, we're doing this again. Okay. We're doing that you know, again. It's my my new thing to say. I do not disagree. Um, <laughs> I just kidding. Uh, definitely, and I think the ruse too is that there are things or actions that we can do, things we can acquire, awards, etc., um, that make us less disposable. Right? Like, oh, if I just get this Guggenheim. Or if I, um, you know, get this fellowship or if I just make myself in, quote, indisposable in some way or indispensable in some way, um, they'll keep me around. But that's the lie. That's the rub there. Um, And so Glover kind of brings us towards the end, right, to this praxis is what I'll call it, where we have to find value within ourselves and then move from there. So it's the it's the self-care, but also the ultimate self-prioritization because you don't want to be constantly measuring yourself against these anti-black woman standards where we constantly fall short and then suffer the health consequences of it, which, I mean, as we're recording this past weekend, um, a scholar, Valerie Boyd, who wrote what is the, what many people are terming is the conclusive um, biography of Zora Neale Hurston, passed away. And a lot of Academics are, are attributing her death to the violence of the academy, right? So, so many black women like Audre Lorde, like June Jordan, um, and others die so early because of the shit that we got to deal with, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, when Glover wrote, I couldn't feed into the lie and gaslighting, that their treatment of me was a reflection of my badness, inadequacy, or worth, but instead the truth which is that my presence served to remind them of their own waywardness and evil. Period. I scrimmed. I was Period. Scrimming. Period. So while we are there to legitimize these programs, because as mm-hmm. Black Feminist has explained, the neoliberal corporate university is secured through institu- institutional diversity. Part of the reason we face the violence that we do is because we stand as manifestations of their past and present depravity and violence and moral turpitude. So they can't, like I said earlier, they can't stand to have us there, but they need us there. And so we end up bearing the brunt of that violence, which lowers, shortens lifespans in an unfortunate way. And we've talked about that in terms of weathering on this podcast and Mm -hmm. all of those things. So Valerie Boyd, rest in... Peace and peace, peace, peace. And I think for me too, I think our presence highlights their mediocrity so that the violence is really just a corrective kind of know your place aggression as Caritha Mitchell discusses. Mm -hmm. And to learn more about know your place aggression, you can listen to our episode in season one, episode 19, keep nope alive, but... It's it's something that I think when you enter into graduate school, you are told to, to come to expect, which mm-hmm. I know we'll talk about a little more when we get to what in the world, but it's just really, it's, it's sickening, honey. It's sickening to me. Yep. To me. But to bring it back to S.T. Glover, what is disappointing, but not surprising, given everything that we've read about her experiences and the you know, discussed within our own experiences, Mm -hmm. 
is that in that interview you mentioned earlier, she said that what we read was actually just the tip of the iceberg. So she didn't talk about the graduate advisor who stole her ideas and then published it. And it was a terrible article. And then, of course, she was pushed out of her PhD program. So she has not completed her PhD, although she, she was like, my words are going to be read. I don't care. My stuff is going to get published and I have earned, my P I have earned a PhD. So whether or not she has one uh, officially from the from the institution doesn't matter. She's like, I don't need that institutional stamp. So, period. you know, she writes about being a feminist killjoy, which comes from Sarah Ahmed, as I mentioned earlier. When you speak up about the problem, you become the problem. And I think that's a perfect framing for what we're going to be discussing in our next segment, which is what? 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 In the world? What in the world? What in the world? What's going on? What's what is going on? Why is Black History Month being anti-Black History Month? <laughs> Yo, I saw that somewhere and I was like, I'm stealing this forever. <laughs> anti-Black History Month. <laughs> so if you haven't guessed it, today we're going to be talking about the controversy surrounding the Harvard anthropologist John Komaroff and the sexual harassment lawsuit against Harvard University. Now, we checked with our lawyers Okay, we didn't check with our lawyers, but I did check with a lawyer. And so we'll make our disclaimer, which is that we are aware these are allegations and we make no intimations of legal guilt of the accused. And of course, we stand with victims and survivors. Yes. So for those of you who may not be aware, um, you may not be out here in these academic streets, Harvard University is being sued by three women Margaret Shavinsky, Lilia Kilburn, and Amulya Mandava for their alleged, quote, decades-long failure to protect students from sexual abuse and career-ending retaliation. John Komaroff is the accused named in this particular case. And so the news of this case has exploded, like academic Twitter has imploded around this. It is ablaze. Um, ablaze. <laughs> Which someone was, someone was like, maybe this is what will make anthropology burn. And I was like, <laughs> the brujeria is working. <laughs> <sighs> Somebody said a prayer, put it on the altar. Um, so, and it's causing a flurry of tweets and calls to action and the kind of Twitter thread tell-alls. And we've seen people jump to validate their own existence as XYZ person in the academy, validate their great graduate experiences, or even defend the accused and his wife in response, right? And so people have also done more research on Title IX adjudication processes, just out of curiosity, in addition to reading the case file. And as a former, as a survivor advocate and a former organizer um, for Title IX, and as someone who's dealt with Title IX as an undergraduate and a graduate student, I can confidently say that shit is fucked up all around. Um, welcome to the work of trying to fix universities, uh, especially for black women and black queer and trans folks. Like these systems fall apart every single time. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're not really meant to stay together. That's kind of the sense, right? It's like, it's Ooh. one of those situations where you again have to say, is this a breakdown of the system or is this the system operating the way it's supposed to? You know, it's always, I mean, 
I always think of it as a system operating how it's supposed to. Yeah. But it was a rhetorical yeah. question. It was rhetorical <laughs> it was for you to journal about. Um, but yeah, there are so many layers to consider here. You know, earlier we talked about hegemony and academic hierarchies. And in the academy, there's this expectation that if you're a woman, mm -hmm. a queer person, a trans person, a disabled person, you're going to experience some discrimination and harassment from your peers and from faculty. That is common knowledge, not common sense. Just saying mm -hmm. it's common knowledge. It's very well known. It's expected practice. It's something that you share with people in your whisper networks and one wrong move can end your career through another kind of academic whisper networks. Mm -hmm. And we discussed whisper networks with our friend Christelle in season one, episode five. It was entitled Lord Take the Wheel. And so if you already stand at the intersection of multiple violences, then that violence is compounded when you enter graduate school. For real. Um, graduate school is not the place where all of a sudden all these violences don't matter, even if it's within a black studies department or without. And on the note of people defending Kamarov and the kind of tell-all confessionals, people were in our mentions with, quote, a terrible injustice is happening here. Someone's career is at stake. And when others, which thank y'all for pushing back because who has time? Um... <laughs> they were like well I don't even know who these people are and it's like so then why are you in our mentions but you know sometimes I think the bots are just getting more and more advanced like let's <laughs> some of people are born <laughs> what am I saying that? <laughs> I was gonna say not some people are born a bot but sometimes <laughs> you have life experiences that turn you into a bot on the internet I don't know <laughs> I feel like academia I feel like that the academic institution I feel like it really trains you to say something when you could say nothing. And so I just want to <laughs> make a little callback to what Brennan was saying about the politics of silence um, and the way that that can be used in a powerful way. Of course, I'm not talking about silencing or being silenced. Let me just add that in there. But yeah, sometimes you might yeah. want to take up a politics of silence. I go. And... Um, that could be defending alleged abusers in our mentions. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> so one of the things that I've been finding so interesting is that this isn't even the first time this is happening. It's not the second, it's not mm -hmm. the third, but I mean, we were literally just here a few years ago when news broke of the toxic old boys workplace at the Howe Journal. And I think one thing that I've been noticing is that anthropologists seem to be at the center of these academic mm -hmm. controversies, specifically when it comes to power and the way that power is wielded in these hierarchical, you know, organizations. And mm -hmm. I wonder if that has something to do with the foundations of our discipline, the way that, and, and I'm, I'm thinking specifically about sexual harassment here. Um, but the way that like fetishization of, of otherness is kind of built into our discipline mm -hmm. in some senses and specifically for white cis men to take advantage of. Mm. Is it that, or is it because of our claims to reflexivity that people are more likely to speak out? You know, I, I don't know. And I think 
that anthropologists are so good about being reflexive for folks who are not anthropologists. We had a whole period in the in the 90s where we're, 80s and 90s where there was a reflexive turn and everybody was thinking about power, um, power in the text specifically. And there was something that Faye Harrison wrote that was so important. She was like, they actually turned something that could be politics into poetics, right? Yeah. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. That's not the exact quote because she obviously wrote it in a far more uh, eloquent way. But <laughs> yeah. so really it's like they're thinking about power in, in the written, in the text, but not really power in the way that uh, people actually experience it. So, so they're like reflexive in their writing, but almost never reflexive about their contribution to toxicity in their departments or, mm-hmm. you know, in their uh, mentor relationships and things like that. And so that's why I tweeted from the ZD account that, you know, professors were closing ranks rather than asking, what can I do to make structural change so that no one else is harmed? They're like, ah, forget them. Yeah. We, um... might, be, we might be screwed over by this. <laughs> yeah, which is, again, if that's your response, oh, your response to someone else coming forward about someone harming them is, well, let me defend the person who's been accused of harm because then somebody might shine a light on me. Then maybe it's time to retire. Um, <laughs> like, oh, uh, you know, sometimes some, the best way for you to make change um, as a tenured professor yada 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 is to retire um but that's that's another talk for another time of course ain't willing to, people ain't willing to have that conversation no because i mean i don't know i'm just like especially if you work at these elite universities don't you basically receive the same same amount of pay but i know it's about maintaining power and the senator i know but anyway being able to, uh, like the, the fact that a lot of these things is like, oh, I get to help shape the future of the discipline. And it's like, why is the the history of the discipline that we know is like, <laughs> that we know is violent and harmful being the ones to shape the future in the, in the present? I mean, this is, this is my research from a completely different context. Yeah, I kind of, but it's like, shifted over. we're looking to the, we're looking to the past in order to, to shape the future, but the past was violent and in in my research specifically it's the colonial past right but it's like this applies here it applies to this question too that it's like right y'all are trying to shape the future of the discipline but you're not thinking about the future you're thinking about how to keep it the same so that you so that you and people like you can continue to succeed and flourish in it exactly and it also requires this like I, mean, I don't even know what you want to call it, forgetting that the past does in fact inform the present and the future. Like you are always already represented in this way. Mm. There's no need for you to maintain this kind of vanguard gatekeeping thing because you already do. Um, and it's, it's, it's something about, at least from the experiences I've had with the namely the white women um, that I've had to deal with, it is something about just being there and being able to be that person yourself that that denies or cuts off the opportunity or wields power. It's just about the the physical presence. 
um, which I think for them validates their own self in some way or at mm-hmm. least like, you know, and I don't want to get too, too um, occult with it, but it's very, it's very vampire energy, <laughs> very vampire energy. But we are, of course, talking about when we think about the professors at close ranks, right? Those letters that were written and signed by dozens of professors at Harvard, the ones that are popping out at other institutions in defense of John Komarov um, as an excellent colleague and scholar, which, okay, girl. Um, And (laughs) one of which was swiftly retracted when the full text of the lawsuit was made public. Like, those, you know, when other non-black people come together my disappointment only goes so far but to see the names of black people on those lists which again everybody was like well it's not surprising who was on there who signed it but still like to see their names and it's like y'all and then for them to just go back and retract it like y'all could have sat there and ate your food but instead you decided to contribute to silencing his alleged victims you instead decided to proclaim to the world where you stand when it comes to people abusing power. And so now we all know. And, you know, the invitation to retire is still out there. <laughs> and the invitation to retire it might not be coming from your departments, but it's coming from me. Like, retire, <laughs> retire. <laughs> I mean, now we have a list. We have a list of people mm-hmm. that, you know, we should... Just avoid that we can stay away from if we have mm-hmm. that privilege. But I don't, honestly, I think it's going to be one of those. The more things change, the more they say the same. You know, people aren't going to stop asking them to review 10 year yeah. files, and people aren't going to stop asking yeah. them to, you know, write articles and read people's books that, you know, mm doing peer peer review like the stuff is just baked into the academy and it's like when you are someone who is in a position of power it's almost like you can't it's it's impossible to get around them or to get away from them because Mm. everybody else is so like I don't want to say enamored but almost just like starstruck by the power that they wield and so Mm -hmm. What are you, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? And, you know, we've (laughs) talked about this before. Like, there's only so much we ourselves can say. I don't even know what's going to happen. Don't assign this uh, this, uh, podcast to your classes. (laughs) (laughs) Because, um, yeah, you know, we don't need it to get uh, some of the things we said to, to get too far out there. Of course, because of that political economy of power that I mentioned mm-hmm. earlier, right? It's built into the way academia works. You're forever attached to the people who trained you. You know, you're always going to be so-and-so student. And who does that mess you up if so-and-so ends up like some of the so-and-sos who have gone down but haven't gone down? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Because you're supposed to have write, you know, have them writing letters for you almost until you get tenure, and sometimes after, you know, and a bad letter, it can mess you up for life, and it can go beyond that, right? And that's what you know you're gonna talk about now. Yeah. So 
Um, there is this medium essay written by Professor Paula Chakravarti, who talks about her experiences of harassment in academic hierarchies. And she basically goes on to prove how if you're not advised by the quote right people or you don't come from the proper background or you choose not to submit to certain types of abuse, you could be blacklisted in the academy. And even though she is an elite Indian woman, right, she still, oh, I was going to say some word that didn't exist. She still <laughs> faced a lot of harassment um, because a well-known person in her department just was like, well, I don't know who you studied under. I don't know who you are. So I decided that you shouldn't be tenured. And it's like, okay, you, this one person has the power to really determine your career. And I've even had a professor threaten me, threaten right, to end my academic career. And it's like, girl, jokes on you, honey. But um, <laughs> because of the way that I worded an email huh. and no, she actually was not a, a, a white woman. Um, but I will say that again, like the worst experience harassment that I have experienced was from a white woman in our department. And I'm looking forward to telling the truth about my experience with her after she dies. I tell my friends, it's going to be the obituary of the ages. Um, she's a very powerful person in our discipline, but not in my particular subfield. So thankfully I have not experienced much backlash or blacklisting at least not to my knowledge but I do know of other students who you have you send an email or you say the wrong thing in a meeting and your entire career has been foreclosed um and another thing that you were talking about is like is this that rhetorical question that you asked earlier of like well is this a system falling apart or is it doing what it's supposed to do like this is definitely the system doing what it's supposed to do. And when folks are thinking about change and how do we change these systems, right? We need to consider that the university, at least in the U.S., was originally created to educate property white men's sons so that they could assume the family's empire, mm. which is why legacy admission still exists. But that's that's a whole nother conversation. All right, so these schools, their rules and their functions and communities stem from that genesis so when women and black people integrated these institutions, which happened last century, <laughs> which I think folks are like, it was just last century that these institutions were integrated by women and by black people and black people integrating allowed for everyone else to come. Um, right? Their fundamental purpose, which is to educate white men, did not shift. So these policies, particularly those that address sexual, gender, and race-based harassment, they still center and protect the white men that these institutions were built for. So Title IX offices are not there to protect victims, right? Title IX is basically a legal guidance for schools, but you can, you can enforce it, right? It's not something that's like, oh, these are what schools are built around. It was written because schools were not doing that shit. Mm. And now you have to like enforce it. Um, but these, all these regulations, they exist to protect the university and the perpetrators. And I put that with a caveat because, again, that is also racially um, and gendered inflected right, from liability. So in my case, um, and I'll talk about my undergraduate experience briefly, like I was physically assaulted by someone that I was in a relationship with. 
and the dean of student conduct who was known to tell um, women of all races that, you know, were known to discredit their abusive experience. He told one woman that she would eventually fall back in love with the man who abused her. Mm. She just need to calm down and spend some time thinking about it. Um, he told me that um, what I had to say about what my experience did not really matter. And then, in fact, when I asked for them to remove the sanctions um, that I received as a result of the physical assault that happened to me in the adjudication through Title IX, he said that I had to apologize to him first um, for, quote, wasting his time. Um, and then he would remove the sanctions. While wow. the ex who who physically harmed me was just given a verbal warning. So I think that experience along with like the organizing that I did afterwards, because I was so angry. I was like, something, something's got to change about this shit. Um, it really taught me a lot of lessons about who Title IX protects. And I do not see these offices or these institutions as things that protect women in general, but definitely black women um, specifically. And if you are queer or trans, hmm. honey, you might as well get a community of people together and jump somebody. Like, it's honestly, I mean, I didn't recommend that. I didn't say that. Okay. I did not say that. But if you leave it up to these institutions, you're on your own or you're pushed out of school. That's what I was saying. So I feel like this case, the Harvard case, like, demonstrates on a larger scale who sees themselves as protected and protectable by the university, right? We have these two white women and one wealthy Indian woman who is suing Harvard um, and they will win this case, fingers crossed, right? Uh, mm -hmm. They'll win this case. They'll win some money to split with their lawyers, which this law firm also has a reputation for gender inequality, hmm. which is fairly, is very interesting. Um, and... You know, that'll be that. But I'm thinking about the black people who Kamarov may have harmed. Right? The ones that are on this continent and not on this continent. Right? right? What is owed to those who are the subjects and objects of African studies, most of which are not members of the Harvard community. Right? What about the generations of students, of his students and students of his wife, right? who themselves have become perpetrators of violence? Like what... What about that? What about them then? Um, and just in a general, general question, like when have we seen white women <laughs> take up a cause and it opened the way for black women to do something or to be seen or be represented? It's all that's almost never happened. It almost always takes us fighting for ourselves, right, mm -hmm. um, to change things. And so all I'm really trying to underscore here is that individual lawsuits like this one, like the one at Columbia, like the one before that, right, uh, are not going to get us out of the structural problem, which is gendered and racial violence. Nope. So many, so many things to say on this. First, I'm sorry that happened to you. That was some bullshit. You know, it's, and you know, I think I, what what it what it also is is reflective of the experiences of everyone. Because if that's 
you know, or not of everyone, but everyone who has to go to the Title IX office, who has to report abusers and people who have harmed them. And it's just like, what is even the function of this office, of this institution? And it says so much that even in our union negotiations, one mm -hmm. of the hills that the Columbia administration was just about ready to die on was having the option for third-party arbitration in these cases. They were mm -hmm. like, oh, no, 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 no. Why would we want to be legally bound to an external arbitrator's recommendations? Mm -hmm. Why would they be comfortable with a third party poking around in their books and poking around in all of the other kind of like um, complaints and things that have happened from the mm -hmm. same person? Because you know that if there is one, and this is one of the things I was saying, if there's one complaint, there are several, several occurrences. It's never a one. It's never a one-time thing. Nobody just one time accidentally sexually harasses somebody. It's a pattern, right? It's a pattern. And so as Glover explains in the article, you know, she learned the ways that universities are, quote, protected enclosures of unchecked violence and abuse of power. So it's like the only, the only true oversight that comes in these private institutions comes from money. And so just like hegemony, you know, it's primarily the interests of the donors that matter. You know, they can influence who gets tenure, as we saw with Nicole Hannah-Jones. They can influence which departments are valuable. And that often means putting programs where Black and queer people are most present in positions of financial precarity. Because we know that some of these departments are like, yeah, we don't have the money. We don't have enough money. But then you go and you look at the psychology department's offices and you're like, oh, wow. <laughs> Y'all got glass windows, wow. stainless steel kitchen appliances. <laughs> what? The printer works? Oh, you don't have to go in and have them play a guess of which black student are you? Are you a student in order to get stuff from the office? That's You don't have to beautiful. be asked, do I know you? which I have been asked before in, uh, by, in my department. By our friend. Yeah, by our friend. Yes, I know exactly who's. Oh, no, no, that not one. that person. Oh, what? Yeah. Oh, wow. It was like a, do I know you? And then there was also a very, a very snappy email. Again, going back to, did you write an email incorrectly? There was a snappy email because I addressed people incorrectly apparently anyways <laughs> we'll talk about that after but one of the things I want to say you know one of my friends was saying it's just so different from the way that black men are treated in the academy which oh, is like they're absolutely. very much groomed and like they're taken under the wing mm -hmm. of a professor and they they want to be you know the person that helps this this black man this endangered black man even if he isn't and when I said endangered earlier, I also meant that in, in like air quotes, because oftentimes it's like people who can talk the talk and walk the walk too. And then they end up having, you know, great teaching jobs and getting tenure at X Ivy League university. Mm. And it's like, hmm, hmm, interesting how you, what your experience was like compared to that of other people who, of, of women, 
who are probably smarter than you. You know, and then you get, and then they get big, big time, and they write books where they describe these black poor women as monsters who made them feel stupid <sighs> um, while they make millions of dollars. So why are you the famous one if other people are, are capable of making <laughs> you feel stupid? <laughs> you know. And yet you're the famous one. But is it and not yet. that you became famous by disparaging black queer women? Hmm. Hmm. In part. In part. In part. In part. And I think there's also turns, I mean, if we want to talk about black men briefly, um, <laughs> right? It also turns to the other side of the coin, which is for those of us who are black, um, possibly queer, maybe trans, maybe disabled, right? A lot of times the, the violence that we experience comes from other black people. And there aren't really ways to report that, right? Um, without the very much so the fear that your career is over again, because of the pool of people in academia is so small. Once you start describing, it's like, oh, this person, I know this person, I know a student of that person. You're applying for this fellowship. We're gonna shut this down, right? And so I've talk. I've had friends who were literally feel immobilized, cannot express how abused they are by their advisors because their advisor is the top person in the discipline, top black person in the discipline, and they cannot speak out against this person. I've worked with black people, black women, black feminists in particular, who are very abusive and exploitative in their workplace environments. And who do you go? Where do you turn to for, quote, protection, which I think is a whole nother that's a whole nother. That's another episode. That's another episode. Because <laughs> I think we got to let this whole idea of protection go, honey. But um, yeah, like where, where do I go to say, oh, this woman who looks like me abused me. Um, there's not really any place to go for that. And what happened to me in graduate school, as far as like the racial, which I would say there was racial and gender based because she doesn't do this to black men, but... Um, when I was trying to figure out what to do about the situation and was told not to report by multiple university offices and the reasoning being we have so many cases. We have so many cases that we wouldn't even get to yours until after you graduated. So what's the point? Um, but I think it, it shows again, like who has the time, who has the mental space, who has the capacity to complain and to keep complaining and to be heard. Um, and I don't have that. So I just said, okay, well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to just ignore and avoid and whatever fallout comes, comes. But now there's like certain conferences I can't go to or certain things that I won't apply for. Um, because I know that she may have her voice in someone's ear on that committee. Hmm. But most of these are like women's and gender studies stuff. That would, I probably would be uncomfortable in anyway, to be honest, to be real. Yeah, I, th- I think as, you know, what you were saying was, I mean, first of all, is the university not embarrassed? That is embarrassing <laughs> that you have so many Title IX complaints that you're going to tell a graduate student who is in the university for the longest 
uh, a social sciences graduate student. Mm-hmm. We are at the university for the longest time because undergrads are typically four, maybe five years. You've got your science PhD students who are going to be there for four years. You have your master's students who are going to be there for two years. I should say science four to five. We're there for seven, generally. Six Ooh. if you're lucky. <laughs> Six so the fact really that really working hard. And so the fact that they were like, yeah, we probably won't get to your complaint. Is that not a sign to you that something systemic is very wrong at the university? But I think a really good reference for folks who are like, damn, why is this process so extensive? Why is it so difficult? Would be Sarah Ahmed's um, complaint. And so she writes mm-hmm. about how the process is designed to tax you. It is designed to Mm -hmm. make you not do your work. It's designed to have you spending time answering emails and collecting evidence and all of these kinds of things, especially, and it's, and it's like compounded for someone who is from a marginalized background, for someone who is Mm -hmm. from a low income background, because you don't have the money to have lawyers do that for you. That's all you, instead of sitting there getting your work done, you are supposed to be collecting collecting evidence and going to you know going to hearings and doing all of this stuff so it's designed to break you down and make you not actually want to make the complaint yeah and that, i mean that goes back to like what i was saying earlier about the university and who was designed designed to defend right so people may not have money for lawyers the person the other person might but also there's a certain credibility that some people have that's read as innate onto them right so like a white man in a title nine case at who may be the perpetrator right might already be seen as a credible voice right where he might all he has to say is oh i you know i got a little drunk i didn't do it right and then the the victim or survivor has to come up with the evidence that this in fact did happen and that it did in fact affect them i think that um that that also too when you think about complaint comes into like whose complaints are read as you need to go through a bureaucratic process and whose complaints are like oh yeah let's take this straight to the top let's let's do something about it um but again it's to protect the university liability because um one university was sued by a perpetrator because Hmm. he was he was sanctioned and he was his sanction was to be expelled for for raping um, another student. And he sued and was like, this is keeping me from getting my degree. And so he won the lawsuit. And so, yeah, so, like, it has to, this, this shit is just, it's so complicated mm-hmm. and it's so much bigger than, like, a professor kiss me, which I happened to be an undergrad. Oh, my God. So it was very, it, <laughs> oh, multiple times. And so I I was like, oh, this is, that's when I started realizing, like, oh, this is actually a systemic issue, right? Um, and then, you know, it goes, it, it's, mm-hmm. it goes to hegemony. Who benefits from this system and who pays mm-hmm. for the system as, in the way that it is? Yeah. Professors give free kisses. Oh, my and, God. <laughs> <laughs> which is just disgusting to think about. Um, but anyways, yeah. that is all we have for you all today 
I will say I hope that in listening to this, you feel seen, you feel like someone else knows your experience, and we just want to say that you are not alone, you are not the problem, the -hmm. institution is the problem, and you go and find yourself in spaces of joy, healing, and love. Yes, go where the love is, even if you have to continue to fight to be seen and to be heard go gotta go to where the love is um and just know there's spaces of love here as well as daughters um again if you have experienced this or title nine issues the organization i used to work for is called know your nine so k-n-o-w your um nine i-x so like the latin way to say nine um, and you can visit them at their website, knowyour9.org. Uh, I used to do a lot of advising for students and a lot of counseling. I still do counseling for survivors who are impacted by these systems. But yes, thank you all for listening. This episode was produced by Alyssa James and Brendan Times and distributed in partnership with the American Anthropological Association. This season of the podcast is generously funded by a grant from the Arts and Science graduate council and donations from listeners just like you thank you all for your support you to bomb the bomb.com again aging myself on my birthday (laughs) (laughs) if you like this episode please share it via social media whatsapp or in a love note we would love to hear what you have to say about this episode so be sure to follow us on instagram at zora's daughters and on Twitter at Zora's underscore daughters. For transcripts, a syllabus, and information on how to cite us or become a patron, visit our website, zorasdaughters.com. Last but not least, absolutely, especially during this time, remember that we must take care of ourselves and each other. Bye. Bye. Bye.